Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Dr. Chris Seaman in part of his presentation, The Beginning of the Good News, a study on the Gospel of Mark, part of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show is titled, The Passion, Part 1, recorded in May 2013. And now, Dr. Chris Seaman. In this handout I I gave you, I, I identify, I think, four places where the implications of Mark's understanding of this death of Jesus come to the fore. And my suggestion is that you could translate it's necessary for the Son of Man to die as it's inevitable that the Son of Man will die. Inevitable because the message that he brings is the message of God's rule. And in the story of Mark, the message of God's rule is opposed by the current rulers. So in other words, it's inevitable whoever speaks against the rulers who don't want to lose their rule, it's inevitable that that person's going to be destroyed or they will attempt to destroy him. Now, I don't want to suggest, I'm not trying to make, to sort of reduce the mystery of the passion to a kind of political analysis. All I'm saying is that for Mark in his context, this is the, the, the framework uh, in which this universal mystery of salvation takes place. Uh, I mentioned a little further down in the handout, it's all about sin, obviously. It's all about saving the world from sin. But I try to avoid that term sin because when we hear sin, we think that means anything and everything that's bad. And it surely does. But when we speak of sin in Mark, in the story of Mark, the sin is ultimately the sin of rulers not wanting to give up their power to God and God's appointed, anointed ruler. That's the historical sort of narrative explanation of why his death becomes inevitable. And so I just picked out these four passages, which are the only ones where Jesus actually addresses the uh, the meaning of his death. The first came right after the transfiguration scene, as they were coming down from the mountain. And the disciples of Jesus, after he had told them, the Son of Man will be raised from the dead, and they didn't know what he was talking about, they asked Jesus, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? So they refer to a tradition about a belief about the prophet Elijah, that Old Testament prophet from the 8th century BC. And they say, why must he come first? Well, come first before what? Um, Before the Messiah, before the kingdom of God? It's not made explicit. But the key to Jesus' response is, Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they wanted to. That is to say, the rulers, the people in power, didn't like Elijah's message of repentance, and so they killed him. And because they didn't recognize that messenger truly as being Elijah, neither will they recognize who I am, and they will respond to me in the same way. So that's the inevitability part. If they killed him, they'll kill me, because we bear the same message. Now, who was Elijah? Well, according to Mark, implicitly, Elijah is John the Baptist. I bring this up again because when we get to the crucifixion scene, Elijah will be a a name that is uttered, and it will be an an utterance of misunderstanding. And so the moment when Jesus is dying, we have another misunderstanding about when is Elijah coming. Well, Elijah already did, did come, and no one noticed, and so the rulers killed him. And so they'll inevitably kill uh, the Son of Man too, the Messiah. The second reference where Jesus explicitly addresses the meaning of his death is the part that we dealt with 
a couple weeks ago, which was at the conclusion of the journey. That's in chapter 10, verse 42, when James and John want to sit at his right and left hand in his power. And uh, Jesus essentially says, you know, that's, you're working with the wrong model of power here. You're working with the wrong model of rule. That's how the Gentiles rule people from the top down. That's what, that's the violence of Gentile rule. But the son of man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's explicitly alluding to Isaiah's suffering servant. But again, notice the context in which Jesus puts it. It's contrasting the way he rules or the way he will rule as Messiah and the way the Gentiles rule through violence, through oppression, through top-down notions of power. The third place where he, where he, Jesus himself interprets the meaning of his death is what we talked about last time at the Passover scene in chapter 1424 uh, at the institution where he, he identifies the bread and the wine with his body and blood. And with the wine, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Again, referring to Isaiah, but putting it in a very specific context. The blood of the covenant is the blood that Moses uses to signify that Israel, and this is something he does at Mount Sinai, to signify that Israel has indeed transferred its status from being slaves to the Pharaoh, slaves to the Gentile ruler, to being servants of God. So the blood of the covenant is that which signifies that a people has entered into God's kingdom, as it were, God's rule. And the other biblical reference to the blood of the covenant comes from Zechariah, the prophet Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, which is the same uh, prophetic book where we get, for example, the entrance of the Messiah into the, into the city that Jesus stages his entrance around. So we know that's a significant thing. And there, too, it, it doesn't confirm a covenant that has taken place. It anticipates God's deliverance of Israel from Gentile rule. So it, the, the language and the imagery is all about war and rule, right? It's not reduced to that, but this is the medium through which it's expressed. The final one, the new, uh, the new thing that we haven't looked at so far, which is Jesus uh, expressing the meaning of his death, is on the cross, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is Mark 15, 34. But, but here he is actually quoting the beginning of Psalm 22. So this is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm of lament by a by a person who is suffering um, uh, wrong. He is suffering uh, wrong from people who are trying to kill him. He is innocent of of any wrongdoing, and they, and they are the aggressors. And so he is lamenting to God that he is near death. He prays that God will deliver him, and ultimately he demonstrates his assurance that God will deliver him. But where this ties in with the theme of rule and the kingdom is at the very end of Psalm 22. This is verses 27 to 28. Does someone have Psalm 22? Can we actually read the, this, the end of the psalm? This is Psalm 22, verses 27 to 28. Yes, please. Notice that. The, the, the end of the psalm, which Jesus quotes the beginning of at his, the very time of his death, is a psalm whose own story leads to a conclusion where God does indeed deliver the person who is suffering. And then the effect of this deliverance is that all the nations will see this and they'll recognize that dominion, kingship belongs to God alone. 
That is to say, even this, which is about as individualistic as you could get. You know, I'm, you know, for whatever reason, people are trying to kill me, and uh, I pray that God will deliver me from my personal, uh, you know, uh, danger. But the implication of it is one of the Gentiles will turn and worship and serve the God who has true sovereignty over the world, not their own rulers. Okay, so those are the four clues that we have, the four, uh, the closest we get to an explanation for why it is inevitable that the Son of Man will undergo this suffering. I like to use the term inevitable here, not, not again, to undermine for a moment the, uh, the, the, the deeper, more profound notion that God himself is supplying a means of salvation to the world. He certainly is. But inevitability um, takes the emphasis away from, you know, God sort of beating up his son, which is sort of a, a facile image that I think a lot of people have sometimes of God as a terrorist. No, uh, it's the nations. <laughs> it's the nations and the people who behave like him who are destroying the son, uh, but God is transforming that apparent defeat into salvation for all. So that's a long-winded introduction, but it's important to frame this whole story, which is so familiar to us. I want to defamiliarize this story to us for a moment. So let's re- recount what happens uh, after Jesus' arraignment before the temple leaders. They hand him over to Pilate at dawn, right? the last moment when the hour might happen. They hand him over to Pilate. And Pilate, his status is actually never explicitly defined in Mark's gospel. The closest we get is after Jesus is sent off to be flogged and all that, he's taken to the, uh, the praetorium, which is the, basically the place where the, 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 the Roman governor has his residence. So now we assume, okay, we, we know he's a Roman governor. Um, but we should assume that, that Mark thinks his audience will know who this is. The point is that we have three parts to this gospel, right? We have Galilee, Jerusalem, and the journey in between. Um, in, the, in the Galilee part, the central sort of source and symbol of opposition to God's rule was the political leader, King Herod, right? Well, although King Herod wasn't actually the one trying to oppose Jesus, um, his, his minions tried to oppose him, right? And, and Herod, of course, kills John too. So we have that. The, the Jewish ruler, as it were, of Galilee uh, is, the, is the source of the problem, the obstacle that the kingdom must overcome to be fully realized. And it's the same thing in Jerusalem. You have the Gentile ruler, Pilate, uh, who ultimately facilitates the plot of these underlings who, whom Rome has appointed to rule uh, uh, Judea, or at least to, to help them govern Judea on their behalf. So my point is that we have a mirror image here. We have a mirror image here, and Herod and Pilate are basically mirror images of one another. Uh, they, are not, they are not the instigator of the plot, right? In the case of John the Baptist, it wasn't Herod who wanted him dead. It was Herod's wife who wanted him dead, right? And Herod's wife uh, and her daughter um, uh, uh, corner the king, or rather the king allows himself to be trapped in a place where the value of his own honor overrides his sense of justice, and this allows him to, uh, con- uh, to command the execution of God's messenger. Um, so this is, you know, Herod is not a positive figure by any means. Um, in fact, the fact that he recognizes that John is a good man makes his actions even more reprehensible. Essentially, what is wrong with Herod's rule is he abdicates his own rightful 
uh, and legitimate exercise of power, he abdicates it to the violent, right? whether it's the Herodians, his followers, or his, or his wife. And the same thing happens in Jerusalem in that mirror image. Pilate's not the instigator, but he allows himself uh, to, well, it's traditional to see Pilate as being manipulated by other people. I actually think it's the other way around. But the point is that it's, it's not the, the titular head of the rule, right? But the, uh, the underlings, right? The, the, the temple leaders who are trying to do this, who manipulate things, just like Herod's wife manipulated things. So there's a, there's a parallel there. And of course, we know that the outcome of the execution is the same. The disciples of each messenger take the corpse and put it in a tomb. Go back and read chapter 6 of Mark, and you'll see the same language about what will be done with Jesus' corpse at the end. So there's, there's, there's an architecture to the whole gospel. A kingdom opposes God's kingdom, or at least the dynamics of power there uh, are incompatible, antithetical to the kind of power that Jesus brings, this life-giving power to rule. And the same thing happens in Jerusalem. In between, we have the journey in which Jesus is trying to teach his disciples, to form his disciples, so that they won't think like that. And we continually see how they have difficulty accepting this other view of power and authority that's not like the Herodians, that's not like the temple leaders and their Roman masters. So that's the big picture. That's the architecture of the whole that brings us finally to this point. So let's look at the trial before Pilate. Uh, Mark's is the shortest account of this, shorter even than John. Um, Matthew and Luke hang other stuff on this story. So this is, in a sense, the most primitive form of this account that we have. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean it's closer to reality than, say, Luke's or Matthew's account, but it's what we have. So it has the basic elements. Okay, so he's brought before the Roman governor. Uh, the Roman governor asks, are you the king of the Jews? Well, this is a term we've never heard of in the gospel, and not surprisingly because it's a Roman term. The king of the Jews is a term that the Romans designed uh, as to, to designate their own appointee to rule Judea on their behalf. King Herod, not the, the one in Galilee, but the one, his father, Herod the Great, he was appointed by the Romans king of the Jews. No one had, that was not a Jewish title. This is a title the Romans created. And so by asking Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Uh, he seems to be asking, do you claim to be ruling Israel? And if Jesus were to say yes, and actually he says, you say so, which is sort of ambiguous. Um, if he said yes, then Pilate would have known that Jesus was essentially challenging him, challenging Rome, because Rome claimed exclusive authority to appoint someone king of the Jews. Anyone else who claimed to be this was obviously challenging Rome's own authority. And then we go back to that whole issue in chapter 10 of Mark. How do the Gentiles rule? They rule from the top down by appointing people who are to their liking. They kill those who disagree. They terrorize those who don't. And one way to understand the trial of Jesus as it unfolds is actually Pilate manipulating uh, the, uh, the Jewish crowd there basically to cause them to renounce the one whom they acclaimed king as he was riding in on a donkey a few days earlier. It says that Pilate gave satisfaction. He satisfied the crowd with his response. But it's actually more complicated than that because if we treat Pilate as a realistic character, 
if we, if we actually think of him as a realistic character, what is his job as the Roman governor? It's to maintain Roman rule. If this character is claiming to be or is perceived as being a king that Rome didn't appoint, then, Herod, then, uh, then Pilate's job is to execute him. Plain and simple. In fact, we know that's why he executed him, because that's what was the charge on the inscription, right? Jesus, king of the Jews, right? That's Rome saying, this is why we're killing him. It's because he claimed to be this. Now, in Mark's story, Mark claims that Pilate realized that uh, that that um, Jesus, well, it's even, uh, it, there's not enough description to really get into Pilate's mind, but he says Pilate realized that the reason why the, the, the chief priest handed him over was because of envy. What is envy? Envy in the ancient world is the emotion where you lack something that someone else has, and therefore you want to destroy that person for having it. That's what envy means. Jealousy is something entirely different. Jealousy means I have a legitimate right to certain things, and if you try to take them from me, then I will jealously guard them. When, uh, when in the Old Testament, God is called a jealous God, that's what it means. Israel is my firstborn son. You try to take Israel away from me, I'm going to get upset. That's what jealousy means. Uh, we, we tend to think of jealousy in a very narrow-minded, sort of uh, infantile sense. But jealousy in the Bible, or zeal, which is the other form of the word, means uh, legit defending what is legitimately yours if someone tries to take it from me. But envy is trying to destroy someone for something that you don't have. Well, what does Jesus have that the temple leaders don't? Let's just try to think back to the story. Jesus goes into the temple. He roughs things up a bit. He is met by the leaders. He ch- he challenges the leaders. Uh, what did they actually ask him when they tried to f- try to discern what he was up to? When uh, what what was the actual question? Does anyone remember the question they asked Jesus after he does his thing in the temple? By what authority do you do this? And of course, Jesus traps them so they can't they can't uh, th- he he won't answer them. He says, "You tell me about John the Baptist's authority." So it's an issue of recognizing whether John was a messenger of God or not, and they say, we won't answer it. But it says that they challenge him on his authority, and they're also afraid of him because everyone else seems to recognize him as having authority. So here I would suggest is the reason Mark puts into Pilate's mind, Pilate sees that Jesus actually has authority, is recognized by the crowd. Because, I mean, surely he would have known that he would have heard that someone was, was welcomed into the city as the king. The Roman governor would have heard that. Someone would have told him that. So he recognizes that Jesus is held in this awe and reverence by the crowds. And the temple leaders want to kill him because they don't have that kind of rapport with the people. Which is actually a pretty historically accurate description of the problems. One of the problems that the, that the chief priests in the first century faced, they had a terrible problem with legitimacy with a sense of, of autonomous authority, because ever since the days of Herod the Great, uh, whoever was controlling Jerusalem, which was either Herod or then later the Roman governors, would simply appoint and depose them at, at will. In other words, they were, in, they were entirely seen as the pawns and the puppets of Herod or the, now the Romans. So they had no independent authority. They might, uh, because of their personal piety, or perhaps their wealth, the way they patronized uh, various institutions, they might develop a sort of an independent um, source of loyalty for themselves, but they had no authority. So 
they are envious of Jesus. They want to destroy Jesus because he has something they don't, and Pilate recognizes that. And again, we have to sort of speculate. If we want to treat Pilate as a realistic character, then Pilate must know <laughs> that his job is to kill Jesus. If, if he knows he's being held in this respect, he says, what shall I do with the man you crowds call the king of the Jews? He's acknowledging that the crowds call him king and the Romans didn't appoint him. His job is to kill him. But Pilate doesn't go about it that way. Maybe he's actually more clever than we think. What does he do? Well, uh, he begins by, or actually he begins by uh, not doing anything. Uh, we're told by Mark that he had a custom, right, that at the festival of Passover, which ironically is now over, so he's sort of late in doing this, um, at the festival of Passover, he would give, he would release to them anyone that they wished, any one person they wished from the jails, right? And this is, again, think of our mirror image of the architecture of Mark. The main obstacles or what's wrong about the world, the reason why we need God's kingdom is because these are the people who are ruling. Well, what did Herod promise to do for his daughter if she would dance for his guests? Anything she wished. The same verb in Mark. Any one they wished he would release. It's a mirror image of the same problem of authority abdicating its authority to uh, the passions of either the mob or you know, you know, conniving you know, courtiers, something like that. Um, so uh, they say, let us, you know, uh, uh, you know, who do you want me to release? And of course, they have him release, or at least the, high, the chief priests instigate them to release uh, someone else, right? This guy, Barabbas. And we're not actually clear on what Barabbas is. Uh, in other Gospels, his identity is is a bit more clear. It's, it's, it, here it simply says he was in prison among those who had caused some sort of political disturbance in Jerusalem. This happened quite a bit during Pilate's tenure, actually. In fact, Pilate was the main source of political disturbance in Jerusalem because he often uh, ran, ran roughshod over Jewish sensitivities in terms of whether you could have idolatrous images in the city and so forth. And he would just, um, you know, place uh, people in the crowd with clubs and club people to death if they didn't uh, agree with him. So there were plenty of political disturbances during his tenure, tenure as governor. Uh, but anyway, Barabbas is identified with this phenomenon of violent reaction to Roman violence. Um, he was not a zealot, by the way. The, the, there were no zealots in the time of Jesus. We often hear about the zealots. Uh, the zealots were a priestly-led movement that emerged as a result of the Jewish war in the year 66. They did not exist prior to that time. Uh, there, there were certainly lots of people who didn't like the Romans. We know this from Josephus, our historian. So this guy, whose name is probably symbolically significant, it might have been his real name, but, you know, Barabbas, Barabba in uh, Aramaic, Bar means son. Abba, guess what? We probably know what Abba means. What does Abba mean? Father, right? Because it's exactly how Jesus addresses God in the garden before he's handed over. Father, Abba, right? So here's son of the father versus son of the father. In other words, Mark is playing on this. You know, whether Mark invented this incident or not, there's, he's, he's drawing our attention. He's saying, what is at stake here for the Jerusalem crowd, the mob, is what kind of leader, you know, what kind of uh, son of the father are they going to embrace? And also, by extension, what kind of rule does 
Rome represent? Does it represent responsible rule or irresponsible rule? Well, if Pilate is willing to release um, someone who is an anti-Roman agitator, that's not a very good sound move, is it? I mean, that's like releasing bin Laden if we had him captured alive. Let's release him instead of, you know, uh, some good person. It's not a very good move. <laughs> um, but uh, this then leads into the question, well, then what do I do with this guy? And, of course, we know the answer of the mob is crucify him. Uh, well, actually, he says, what shall I do with the one whom you call king of the Jews? Now, here's where most people say, okay, well, this is, you know, some anti-Jewish representation of the people at the time of Jesus. And this is sort of just deflecting blame for the, from the Romans that it's really the Jews who are responsible, not the Romans. Well, that's certainly the way this has been used throughout much of Christian history, I, but I don't buy it. I don't think that that's actually what it, how it would have been heard by Mark's audience in the year 70 or whatever. I think what's going on here is Pilate is being presented as a manipulator. He is so effective as a ruler, a Gentile ruler, right? one who rules through, through tyranny and oppression, that he's, a, he's able to basically for, uh, compel by words to compel the supporters of this king to condemn him. So if I'm Pilate and I say, you know, what shall I do with this who you call king of the Jews? He's insinuating that these are all anti-Roman agitators out there in the audience. Well, if they were to say, save him, guess what Pilate would probably do? He would call in the, the troops. He would say, kill them all, massacre them like I massacre people who I don't like. You know, this is actually not a a wishy-washy pilot, as he is in some of the other Gospels. This is a pilot, if, if this is anything like the pilot of history that we know from Josephus. He's baiting them. If you say, let's, let's treat him well, that means you're my enemy. That means you oppose Roman rule. That means I can kill you. So essentially, the crowd, I would suggest, is actually not necessarily just suddenly, you know, in a, in a fit of, of amnesia, forgetting that they just welcome Jesus in as their king. They're saying, uh-oh, you know, if we say save him, we're all going to die. So the, so the Roman governor traps them with words, and then he baits them again. Why? What evil has he done? Well, if, he's a, if he claims to be king of the Jews, or if they claim he's king of the Jews, that is an evil, according to Rome. So if they say, well, he hasn't done anything wrong, then Pilate says, so you're all anti-Romans, I see. This is how Pilate, as a realistic character, would really be thinking, I would suggest. Uh, and so, of course, we know that he is then uh, let, let off to, uh, to be crucified, to be battered up and then crucified. Due to time constraints, today's talk will continue next week at the same time. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.